Welcome back, welcome back. Episode 3, You're Gonna Film It Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Today we're gonna be talking about COVID-19. We have some special guests today. We have a nurse, Nurse Witherspoon. I'm sorry, nurse practitioner. Please allow me, forgive me. I'm sorry. We have a nurse practitioner, Nurse Witherspoon. We also have a social worker, Mrs. Allen, who goes by clinical social worker. They just corrected me all from the beginning. We have a clinical social worker, Miss Ebony Allen. Ladies, you want to introduce yourself? Miss Allen, you first. Hi, I'm Ebony Allen. I'm a clinical social worker working with youth and families in New Orleans. Hello, my name is Renata Weatherspoon. I am a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and I am um, ready to give my input. We appreciate that, ladies. And going to the, the pandemic we're in, you know, I just want to kind of touch on what's going on with y'all seeing on the front line with adults, children, not too much pets, but, you know, everything. How's affecting people? What do you think can be done to actually help somebody mental, you know, save them? All kind of things. So, Miss Allen, you're a clinical social worker, and where at? So, I own a um, counseling service called Brookhaven Counseling and Consulting Services. We are located on the West Bank in Gretna, and they also provide social work services through a school-based health clinic in a couple different schools here in the city. Okay, and what, what type of counseling? All kinds are? Yeah, so um, mental health services... Uh, individual, couples, family, um, any kind of therapy that a person may need. Gotcha. And Ms. Weatherspoon, mm-hmm. where are you employed at and what are you doing where you're employed at? Of course, I know you own the, well, you ran a psychiatric whole, you know, business, but what are you doing now? Um, right now, I am a 1099, so I essentially work for myself. I contract myself out to different psychiatric clinics, um, different facilities who um, need assistance with behavior health program development, um, facilities who need the provider to see clients experiencing mental illnesses, and I do a little bit of therapy on the side. Okay. And with the whole pandemic that's going on right now, what are y'all seeing, I mean, as far as mental? Is is it worse than what it was before, or is it about the same? Um, from my perspective, I think it's getting a little bit worse because um, there is no sense of normalcy right now. So you have individuals who, I mean, I can speak for myself. When this first came about, I, my anxiety went through the roof because I, I I wasn't used to seeing people walking around with masks. I wasn't used to staying at home. I was used to being a productive citizen, going to work. I was used to my daughter going to school. It was an adjustment for myself, my family. I couldn't go see my grandmother in the nursing home. I mean, it, it, it literally went from zero to 100 for me. So it my anxiety was through the roof. Um, I, I did experience one panic attack, and um, I had to talk myself through it. And I had di- I had difficulty sleeping when this first came about. Even though I am a mental health provider, it still affected me because, like I said, my everyday routine was completely uprooted and it changed. And I've been talking to different um, family members and friends, and they they've been experiencing the same thing too because life as they knew before is now no longer. Correct. And what about you, Miss Allen? I don't necessarily think it's gotten better or worse. I think what it's done is kind of reveal an issue that's always been there. But now, whatever coping mechanisms people had to cope with it have now been pulled away. So um, speaking about Black people in particular, one coping skill that we use often is to surround ourselves with family and friends, right? So we don't particularly jump into mental health the way that some other cultures do for a bunch of reasons. We instead 
go and hang out at grandma's house or hang out by auntie house or go to a cards game or we surround ourselves with community as an effort to combat those emotional conflicts. Now that you can't do that, the issues that we've always had are just more prevalent and more at the front of things so now you can see it because whatever you did before to put a Band-Aid on it, now you can't do that. All right. So do you feel... Does medicine work for, for instance, the anxiety or the things people are feeling or that's just a band-aid to make your mind think that it's working, but it's not working? No, I, I think, um, and Renata is the medical professional, so she can probably speak more about the medication part of it. I can tell you that um, I think it's twofold. One, when it's needed, it's a very effective tool, right? Um, I think that to say that psychotropic medicines don't work feeds into the stigma around mental illness, right? Because we would never tell anyone, oh, you have a headache, but don't take Tylenol because that's just a Band-Aid. We would never tell anyone, oh, you fell and broke your arm, but don't take the anti-infection medication because that's a Band-Aid, right? It's almost like we assume that if you are having a physical pain, you're going to do what's necessary to relieve that physical pain. Psychotropic medicines, when prescribed and monitored correctly, do the same thing for mental illness. So if there is an individual who truly has an anxiety disorder or a depression disorder, and they need medication as a part of their system to manage it, then I think by all means they should take their medication. I think the key is to remember that that's a piece of how we manage mental illness, right? So you don't just say, okay, you broke your arm, take these pills. No, you have a whole treatment plan, which may require the pills, a cast, monitoring. You may need to see an orthopedic surgeon. There's a team and there are several things that you do to address the issue. With mental health, it's the same way. So you don't just prescribe pills and throw the person away, right? You do the, you take the medication, you involve yourself in therapy, you practice coping skills, and you work your treatment plan the same way you would do if there was a, a need for medical attention. Um, I always say that um, medication, when prescribed, is effective when taken properly. Um, I think with me as a prescriber, short term, I think medications are, are, are good for short term and when needed. Life is going to happen. So my thing is I, I can't medicate life because we are going to experience something through life. So I don't ever want my clients who come to me and they, I put them on medication to become dependent on that medication. I want them to go to therapy, identify their symptoms that is causing them to um, seek the medication, go to therapy, identify a, a support system. Who do you go to outside of um, the medications to give you that support and that um, that encouragement that you need, that motivation that you need? Who you go to to as an outlet when you need to discuss something that happened um, today or yesterday or whether it happened in your childhood, who do you go to or what do you do? What type of coping skills do you have or coping mechanisms do you have in place? So when you are experiencing some um, issues that make your mental health exacerbate, who do you, what do you do to help those symptoms? What's your outlet? So the medicine is <clears throat> as needed but you can't just be, basically you can't become dependent on the medicine. You have to use your other tools. Right. The medicine is just a part of your treatment plan. Gotcha. If, if necessary, and not everyone needs medication and not everyone is open to taking medication. So it, it's an option for those who need it and who are open to taking it. But I agree with Renata, it's very important to not just give someone medication and then send them on their way. There's monitoring that needs to be done. There's therapy that needs to coincide with the medication. Okay. And as far as children, are you seeing a a difference in, in kids during the COVID compared to maybe regular, just dealing with regular school days or regular things that happen in their life? Well, it's honestly, 
what we're seeing so far with kids has been um, kind of surprising. Children are extremely resilient, right? And for the most part, when in a nurturing environment, they're going to thrive. They're going to thrive in some cases more than we as adults thrive. What we are seeing is that children who may have had um, high anxiety, who may have had behavior issues or discipline issues within the school building are actually excelling now being able to work from home and move at their own pace. So I think academically, children are going to surprise us when we're able to come out of this and look at what the data shows. Now, on the other side of that, children are also um, in the home now without an outlet. So I also think we're going to see a rise in the number of abuse cases because parents don't have the outlets that they typically have. Also because abuse is usually discovered at school. Children are not going to school, so you know there's no refuge for those children in those situations. Um, but I think overall, with the right supports in place, um, I think children are going to fare out better than some adults, actually. Okay. And are you seeing an increase in domestic violence? or Because, you know, people are at home with their significant others, per se, compared to maybe eight hours a day till, to every day now, all day, 24 hours for the last, what, a month and a half that we've been on? the so-called stay-at-home order? So I think that we are in the middle of it right now, which means that it's difficult to really uh, look at data and say what has increased, what has decreased. I think when we're on the other side and we can look back, we'll be able to get the answer to those things. I would imagine so. I would imagine that tensions are higher, that whatever, like I said before, whatever outlets people are used to using, they no longer have. So just in general, aggression is going to be higher. Um, tempers are going to flare. Now, whether or not that results in abuse, I think if you're in an abusive home, then yes. That's not to say that if you were not already in an abusive home, that now you will be. You know what I mean? So I think it just depends. I think that that'll be something to look at when we're on the other side of this. I think um, domestic violence as well as the increase uh, uptick in substance use as well mm -hmm. because people can't um it's they're they're having a harder and harder time adjusting to life now so they go to sub illicit substances to cope marijuana cocaine heroin so alcohol so i think substance use has also increased i agree with that 100 so recreational use has gone up since mm -hmm. covid 19. I would, I would be inclined to say yes. Okay, and speaking with you earlier, Ms. Renata, you said that you went to New York on an assignment. Yeah. I went to, um, I wanted to see firsthand what it was like in um, the epicenter of COVID-19. So I went to the Bronx and I was stationed at a hospital in the Bronx and I worked on a psychiatric unit. Um, what I saw was disturbing. It was so different from what I was used to because I have an emergency room background um, at Charity Hospital prior to Hurricane Katrina and I've worked in emergency rooms and I've worked in psychiatric facilities. And just the extent of what, what has taken place with these individuals mentally is it was just drastic. I saw two individuals who um, tried to commit suicide as a result of testing positive for the coronavirus. One of them had minor um, wounds, graze wounds. The other one, he um, had a self-inflicted wound to the head and he had some neurological deficits as a result of that. Um, I've uh, also seen a lot of patients who were clinically depressed as a result of COVID-19. Um, one of them attempted to overdose. They just couldn't handle the I guess the new norm um so they went to drastic lengths to try to remove themselves they did not have the the support system and they weren't able to cope they already had some underlying mental illnesses um that were exacerbated by the COVID-19 I'm not too sure if those illnesses were addressed appropriately 
but I know majority of the patients that I did see were not um, compliant with their medications um, as well as therapy sessions. And when I do talk to individuals who are experiencing depression or anxiety, it's important for them to take their medication, but it's also important for them to do therapy as well. I think in, in some cases, I think therapy is a little bit more important than the medication because with the therapy, you mobilize, you 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 get those effective coping skills. So when life does throw a curveball at you, which it commonly does, you are able to think and process and, and go through that situation without having to depend on a pill. So I think in some cases, medication is great, but I also think in some cases that medication can be used as a crutch. Well, from personal experience, um, taking a medication, not per se for psych, because I didn't take it for psych, I took it for anxiety, which I still take it actually. Me personally, it doesn't help. I think in my mind it helps, but it doesn't help. When I actually sat down in front of this lady, which is a counselor, Miss Ethel, she was so great. Cause I went in there with an attitude, like you can't tell me anything. And the first thing she was she told me was, Brandon, you're not in control. So I got defensive. You know, what you mean I'm not in control? I know what I'm doing, you know, I know what's going on, I know what day day of the month, the week, the time. She just looked at me and said, no, you're not in control. And it made me sit back and think. <clears throat> so I opened up to her and I just told her everything that was going on, you know, what I was dealing with. And I looked forward to going to counseling every week. Then I looked forward to going home every night taking the Ativan. Mm. Yeah, well, I'll just speak on that a little bit. The way that I try, um, because working in a school system, Parents are always asking, you know, they want me to put my baby on this medicine, medicine. Should I do so? Um, you know, I advise them that I'm not a doctor. I don't want to operate outside of my scope of practice. But here's what I can tell you. I explain it to them that medication is very similar to a restraint. Right. So if you have someone who is acting out of sorts, who is going wild and you place a restraint on them, that restraint is going to hold them down. Their restraint is going to stop them from swinging their arms and, and, and kicking their feet, right? But if you don't teach them the techniques while they're held down, when you remove that restraint, they're going to go wild again. So that's how I compare medication and therapy. Medication is the restraint. It's going to act in your body in a way that's going to give you a certain sense of control. Therapy is when you actually learn the techniques that are needed when that restraint is removed. So, um, obviously, I'm a therapist. I believe in it, right? Um, I think that, again, I, not to say that medicine isn't necessary, because for some people, they really, really need it. It is equally as important, if not more important, to get the therapeutic techniques that you need. Uh, you talked about your therapist, Miss Ethel, and how she was able to speak to you. The first thing she was able to do was get your attention, right? So I always tell people when you're looking for a therapist, it's just like you're looking for a significant other. It's the most intimate relationship you're going to have outside of a romantic relationship. So you want to find somebody that's going to vibe with you, somebody that's going to speak your language, someone's going to challenge you when you need to be challenged, but also nurture you, you know, when when it's time to do that as well. One thing I'm I'm saying, so, well, I want to ask Renata, when you were in New York and you seen that, was it all African-American or was it all creeds? It was all creeds. Because the news is portraying it as if, you know, or as an alarming rate that this is affecting African-Americans more than it's affecting Caucasian, Spanish, Vietnamese. And one thing I say about that is, in New Orleans it's different because you're 70% African-American, maybe 28 Caucasian and 2% Vietnamese or Spanish. So just across the world, you know, I wanted to know, was it, just blacks or was it everybody else because you know they portray so bad i guess it's um how your geographical um location is made up because when i was in new york the rocks 
Um, I actually took care of more um, Caucasians and Hispanics than African Americans who were directly affected by um, COVID and coronavirus. I think I may have had only one or two African American males that um, tested positive for the virus. I had way more um, Caucasian, older, um, and Hispanic uh, individuals who were affected. Okay. And Miss Allen, do you feel do you feel like black people, African Americans, are afraid of counseling? Of course. Um, I think that there are several factors that play into that factors both inside of our own community as well as outside of our community, right? So inside of our community, we are told, you better not go telling people your business and you better not telling people my business, right? right. We're told you suck it up and you deal with it. Jesus will make a way. Go talk to your grandma. She gonna know what to tell you, right? Those are the, those are the things that we're told within our community. Outside of our community, we have less resources than other cultures, right? Um, therapy is very expensive. And if you are not a Medicaid recipient or if you don't have insurance and you're paying out of pocket and now you're in the middle of a crisis and you have to decide whether you're going to pay your light bill or pay for therapy, which one do you think is going to go away? Right. So I saw prior to the start of this um, pandemic, the, the majority of my caseload in my private practice is African-American for a bunch of reasons. Right. Um, though they were also majority paying out of pocket. As soon as the pandemic hit, this was the first thing to be cut. And there's no judgment there. I get it. I'm a mom. I have a family as well. If I have to choose between counseling and feeding my children, it's a no-brainer. And so I think that dealing with the lack of resources, dealing with the stigma, and dealing with the um the barriers that we place on ourselves and that others place on us, it it is a big um it's a big stigma. A part of why I wanted to start my own counseling practice was for that very reason. Because I am, I consider myself to be educated. I'm also straight out the hood. So guess what? If you want to sit and have a conversation with someone who is both educated, who has both done clinical research, who knows the clinical terminology and has the clinical knowledge, but also can sing Jeezy with you, then, then, then I'm your girl, right? And that, I think, is a part of why my caseload is mostly African-American because I'm trying to erase that stigma that because you need to speak to someone about your emotional wellness, it doesn't mean you're crazy. It doesn't mean that you're weak or you're broken. It means that you're human and that you're taking advantage of resources that other cultures have consistently taken advantage of and given their children the advantage of. So I have white parents dragging the children in to see me and then black parents telling the children, y'all better not tell that lady my business. And I think that, you know, again, there's no judgment. It's just what we get from, you know, how we were brought up for the most part. That, um, a lot of times the, the, in dealing um, with patients from my experience, they want that person who they can relate to. They mm -hmm. want somebody who went through the struggle, who grew up in the hood, who they can sit down and be completely transparent with without them judging them or correcting how they speak or asking, wait, say that again, what do you mean by that? They want somebody who they can relate to. So when they don't see, when they walk in and they see somebody of a different race or somebody who has a language barrier, who they don't fit, they're not more apt to sit down and open up. Mm -hmm. When they walk in and they see me, they be like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. All right, where you from? What school you graduated from? I think also the thing that's amazing about that, especially for me, because my practice is um, mostly with children and adolescents. I remember one little girl that I saw right after I first got my office. Um, she was a little 14-year-old black girl, but she attended an all-white private school. And I remember she walked in my office, she sat down, and I started, you know, talking to her, and she just kept looking behind me. And so I asked her, I said, you want to talk about something back there? And she said, all of those certificates have your name on it. And I said, yeah, I earned those. And she said, those are all for you? 
And I said, yeah. And she said, and you own this business? And I said, yeah. And she got quiet and I said, what are you thinking? And she said, man, if you could do it, I know I could do it. That's my goal, right? That That is exactly why I do what I do because she's absolutely right. If I can do it, you can do it and you can do it too. And so it's about not only providing the treatment to break the stigma, but also being front and being present, right? So I'm a very outgoing person. I don't have a shy bone in my body, but I actually don't like being on camera and being on video because we all have our insecurities, right? But the thing that drives me to do it is that I want little girls with dark skin like mine to see somebody that looks like them in a decision-making role. And that's true because when you cut on the television now, and I, I hate to say it, but if I'm watching a show and I see five commercials within the, the four-minute span, there's no one that looks like us. Mm -hmm. So I know when you get to a child, and as a child coming from a child, when I was a child, you know, you see that and you just kind of get turned back like, well, nobody on the television looks like me. And the only time I see a figure that looks like me is either shooting a basketball, mm -hmm. rapping, rapping, going to jail. Or on Jerry Springer. Or Mr. Springer show. Exactly. So it, it kind of, that's great that it, it points out. And, it, you know, because children, they're receptive to everything. Like, damn, Miss Allen got this. Miss Weatherspoon got this and she drive this. Well, what they doing? I could do it. Mm -hmm. You know, but. And not only that, but when um, we first started with this podcast, I was very open with my saying my issues with my anxiety. I want people to know that I'm human too. We all just one episode away from being admitted. So <laughs> I, I need everybody to know that this is real and everyday people, whether you're professional or not professional, we experience this too. So I want to be able to relate with you to let you know, hey, you're not the only one going through this. I myself have also had anxiety. We've all experienced depression. Some people were able to shake it off. Some people were not. And that's when it became a little bit more excessive and interfered with their activities of daily living. So we all go through anxiety. We all go through depression. But when it, it gets to the point where it becomes excessive and interferes with your um, activities of everyday life, then it, it it's a problem. One thing COVID-19 should have taught everybody across the world, and my partner Rashad, he pointed this out. It don't matter who you are. It don't matter what color you are. It don't matter if you got a billion dollars in the bank or you got $2. You can't duck it if, if it's for you. If it's meant for you to get it, you're going to get it. So I, that's true. But I, I also have to say something about that. I agree 100% that um, it, contracting the virus doesn't, doesn't discriminate. But I think that once you have contracted the virus, that again just shows us the disparities in health. Because people of African descent are affected worse by the virus because their immune systems are already compromised, because they have diabetes, because they have high blood pressure. And I've seen so many things that say, well, if you stop eating anything, then you won't have it. And that is definitely a part of it, right? We also know that poor access to health care feeds into increased rates of those illnesses. We also know that working families with less choices for healthy food feed into those disparities, right? I mean, you can see I'm, I'm a big fine girl and I have struggled and tried to diet for, for pretty much forever, right? You can look at the cost of healthy food versus the cost of unhealthy food. You can get a burger for $2 pretty much anywhere you go, but you're not gonna get a really good salad for that price. So just those little basic things alone are things that our communities face every day that other communities don't face. You're not gonna go into a well-to-do neighborhood and have a liquor store on every corner. And then you wonder why we suffer with alcoholism on more alarming rates, right? You're not going to be able to find cigarettes and tobacco on every corner in those other neighborhoods. So while I agree that contracting the illness doesn't discriminate, I also think that we have to um, acknowledge the fact that we are suffering more not just because of what we eat. Yes, that is a part of it, but it's also all of these other economic issues that we didn't ask for 
that we are struggling to make it through each day. Even thinking about the the um, the cut in income that families have received. So if you are working and making two cents over the power, poverty line, you don't qualify for food stamps, right? Well, what happens if what you were making is now cut and you have to make a, a choice between deli meat and processed meat? Or you have to make a choice between prepared food so you can get to your next job or a healthy home-cooked meal because of cost. So I think that we have to always go back and consider the things that are within our control, but also some of the things that our families are dealing with that are outside of their control. That's true. That's true. And, and, and it is hard. I mean, I looked at some of the, the things that's going on with people losing their jobs. And, you know, I had a guy on last week. He's a musician. He just talked about how a lot of the musicians couldn't even get unemployment. So that just make your mind wonder, like you say, a choice between processed meat and deli meat, what you gonna do? You know, it's... it's... The, the one thing that black people do know how to do is, we know how to feed our families. That's so if true. I gotta feed you with these red beans and these pigtails in it, that may not be the healthiest choice, but if I have to choose between that or not feeding you at all, then I'm gonna make it until I, until I can't make it anymore. Yeah. And I don't want the red beans if they don't have the pigtails in the meat person. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying that the kids are kind of fairly doing a little better now because I mean they're being homeschooled and you think it's because they don't have the pressure of the their peers on them? Yeah, so like I'm a very um data-driven person, right? I don't like to just talk off the top of my head. I like to look at statistics and then speak based on that. I still think it's too soon to say for sure, but I think just like anything else, you have different pockets of kids. You have, um, I'll use my daughter as an example. I have a 14-year-old and sometimes school can be difficult for her uh, for a bunch of reasons. She is in a loving, nurturing home with two parents who take care of her very well, she's gonna do better in that environment when there are less pressures to think about than there are in the school building, right? On the flip side, there are children who have a harder time being outside of school because school is a safe place for them. School is a place where they know they're gonna get a meal. School is a place where they know um, they're not gonna be harmed and it's a safer place. So I don't think that there's a, a blanket across the board answer. I think it depends on which population of children you're looking at. I think some children are gonna fare out much better. And I think that some children are gonna suffer based on their own home environment. But I think it's too soon to really determine what the rates of those things are. That That's the, and I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's the thing about mental health. So like looking at Renata as a nurse practitioner, this is when they're on. This is when the medical professionals are on. People are ill, like they gotta, you know, call in the troops and, and suit up and go. As mental health professionals, we're on, but we're gonna really be on when this thing is settled. Because right now, people are not thinking about talking to me, people trying to figure out how they gonna eat. People trying to figure out how they gonna get gas money to get to work. Now, once this has settled, and, and now we're trying to figure out what the new norm is, I think that's when we'll see an influx in the real need for counseling. And people have to remember, counseling is not bad. Oh. It is not bad. It's 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 a great thing, actually. I'm still living. It is a great thing, but for those individuals who are still on the fence about counseling, you can do some things at home to kind of mm -hmm. help soothe those thoughts. Um, one thing I recommend highly is journaling, writing down everything that you have in. It's a form of release. Um, for those individuals who have a hard time with sitting down talking to individuals that they are not familiar with, Get a journal, get a notebook from the dollar store and just write down everything. When you're writing, just write whatever comes to your mind, however you feel. It doesn't have to be grammatically correct. It's not going to be graded. Nobody will see it. If you don't have that support system or anybody who you can identify in your immediate um, network of family and friends that you can go to, that you can trust and get some sound advice or encouragement, 
get a journal, get a sheet of paper and just write out everything that you feel, everything that you think, get it all out. That's a form of therapy. Another thing that um, I highly recommend um, is a mood journal. A lot of people ask me what that is. So you get a notebook, you get some paper and every day you rate your moods. You can do, I do zero to 10. Zero can either be um, the worst day, um, 10 can be the best day, or 10 could be the worst day, zero, however you see fit. Five is somewhere in the middle. On the days where you, let's just say 10 is a great day. Let, uh, zero is a great day. Let's just say you, you're cruising and um, you notice that you've been having more zeros, more good days than bad days. You write down everything about that day surrounding that day, where you were, what you were doing, who you were with, how you were feeling, what music you was listening to. Write down and be very specific when you are entering um, your entries, when you are writing down your symptoms. Be very specific. You go back and if you see that you are having more good days than bad days, then you keep you repeat that. You stay around those individuals. You do the same activities that you were doing. You um, go to the places that, that you go to to make you feel a certain type of way. If you notice that you've been having more bad days than good days, you look back and you see where you were, what you were doing, who you were with, and you remove those triggers is what I call them. You remove as much as that from your daily routine as possible. Anything that's going to affect your mental health well-being, you have to remove it. If you see that you're having more in-between days, then you know you need to make some adjustments in between. And I think that's highly effective because you identify people, places, and things that increase your anxiety or make you feel uneasy or solicit certain feelings of um, depression or sadness or you feel isolated. Start removing people, places, and things that make you feel uneasy. Um, another thing I recommend is um, meditation. That's good. Um, yoga and being active, getting outside, doing anything to get that heart rate up. Sunlight, exercise, all of that releases those chemical endorphins, endorphins in your brain that signal you to get more energy, to be more happier. Um, and it also makes your body tired so you can go to bed and get a, a, nice, a good night's rest. People do not realize how important sleep, good sleep hygiene is. And with sleep hygiene, um, it's important for you every night to develop a routine. Go to bed around the same time yeah. each night. Remove all the distractions. I always tell people and they laugh, but the bedroom should be reserved for two things. That's sleep and sex. <laughs> so anything outside of that is a distraction. Remove all of those distractions. Turn your phone off. Stop scrolling Instagram, Facebook. Get you a proper night's rest. And one thing, I'm gonna come to you, Miss Allen. But one, another great thing is journal, but adult coloring book. Mm -hmm. You could buy these coloring books that have all these explicit words, and you could color, and it'll take your mind off. It'll make you know because you're. At this point, you're focusing about not going out the line. So that's blocking anything negative that's going in. Well, that's what I did. I have a personal story. It's, I'm just happy I'm still here. What you got, Miss Allen? Oh, she said sleep and sex. I just said check and check. <laughs> I don't have anything else to add. Oh, I, got, uh, I got two black women here who just... <laughs> yeah, for, so for those individuals who are still on the fence about going talk to a professional who they're not familiar with, who they think they can't relate, just try some of the activities that I just mentioned on your own um, while you're at home just to kind of help ease those symptoms that you've um, been experiencing. I don't understand... I guess I do understand, but I don't understand why people are on the fence. People are scared to go to counseling. I get the whole thing when you were small, you know, suck it up, don't cry, man up, don't tell the people my business. But we try everything else. A lot of us try drugs Drug. without hesitation. So if you know this is going to better your life, because we know counseling can actually help you, get you further, get you over what you're scared of, or stop you from doing some shit that you don't want to do. Why are we just, I don't get it. Or why are we back away from it? I don't. 
just the stigma associated with mental illness. When you go to a psychiatrist, uh, from this is from just me seeing patients. When patients come in to me, they are very hesitant at first. When I do my initial psych eval, a lot of them are not forthcoming because when they, they come in, they feel like, if I'm coming in to see this person, then I'm admitting that I have a problem. Mm -hmm. They don't want to admit that they have that problem. So they're going to withhold as much information or minimize their symptoms as much as possible so it doesn't seem like they're crazy because that's what people label them as being crazy. They don't want to seem crazy. So they're going to come in, they're going to be hesitant. Some of them are going to be irritable that they're even there. Other people are going to minimize their symptoms. So it goes back to the stigma that's associated with mental illness. They don't want to see a, a, a behavioral health provider because to them, it's conveying that they have, they are admitting to themselves that they have a problem. Yeah. I So I agree with that 100%. I also think that one barrier is that it hurts. We don't want to do anything that hurts, right? And so the idea of counseling is to get to a place where it doesn't hurt as much. It's to get to a place, you know, and I said earlier, life is life and life is going to always happen. I agree. The purpose of counseling is to be able to give you the tools that you need to handle it when life does happen. It is often difficult to get to that point without first uncovering what has happened along the way. And that is painful and that is scary. And it causes people to have to face the very things that they want to turn away from. So I think that those are also barriers to counseling. Um, and then it just goes back and it runs deep. I think it's generational. Like we are really taught that you keep the family business within the family. We are taught that you are strong enough to handle it and all you have to do is pray. Um, and, you know, I'm a Christian and so I'm definitely not saying don't pray and don't believe God, but I think you pray and you pray that God sends you to a therapist like me so that we can get you exactly where you need to be. Well, one thing about it, I mean, I'm, I'm a devoted Catholic, <laughs> but you can pray and you're supposed to pray, but... God places people. things and people mm -hmm. in your life for a reason. I mean, think back to what you said, Miss Allen, about the Tylenol. You're not going to break your arm and not take the, I don't know the word you said, but the pain medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not going to take the antibiotic not to get the infection. You're not, you know, you're going to take it. So you're not going to just sit there, God, please heal this broken arm exactly. and go through it. No, he places people there and people with talents to get you, you know, and that's kind of what we got to recognize because New Orleans, we, we kind of have that Southern Baptist mentality. Like Jesus, like you say, Jesus will make a way. Yeah, he but he will make he a making way a way to source. you, yeah. to Renata. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, you know, to, to bring it back to spirituality, a part of it is that we have to have faith, right? But we also know that faith without works is dead. So you can have all the faith in the She's world, church in but here. you got to, you know, you have to put the work in as well. Hey, you got to. Because, uh, I mean, I never thought of counseling ever. Mm -hmm. like, like, man, look, I'm strong. I'm here strong. I'm a man. And I done been through some shit in my life, personal life, work life, relationship life, whatever. But, you know, it's just one day I sat down and was like, you need to talk to somebody. Because, and I'm going to share my story. And Renata knows some of my story because... This is my child's cousin. June 19, my mama died. Like, people don't understand. People walked in the room and was like, Mr. Gilmore, you need to make a decision. Like, make a decision. What's going on? So I called Renata Cousin, which is my little boy's mother. She called Renata. And I have another friend that's a nurse. We worked on your mama for 45 minutes, sir. She ain't coming back. So you either need to let us know what to do. Uh, so I'm thinking in my head, I know what my mother told me. Don't let nobody work on it. So at that moment, I'm feeling bad because we went 45 minutes. That's the first thing. So to look at my auntie and look at my mom, my husband and my little brother and be like, I got to pull a plug. 
That's like the hardest shit you could do in your life. This my mama. But the second hardest thing was looking my grandmother in her eye and telling her your second child and die. Because I had to tell her her first child died which her baby child. Now I have to tell you your oldest daughter died. So, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it goes down until, you know, like this shit is unreal. This is not, this is not life. Because, you know, you envision with your parents, you envision your parents are going to be here forever. Your parents teach you everything, preferably your mother. Not no knock on fathers, but your mother. Your mother teach you everything. She teach you how to love properly, but she don't teach you how to live without her. And that's what people don't get. So I went through this whole thing from June 2019 in Byron Contest, the producer, to about September. I'm like, fuck it, I'm going to go out of town and work. That's going to just, it's going to kill everything. That could have been the worst thing I did. You get out of town, your mind just start wandering. So I started blocking it. I started blocking it. I didn't turn to drugs because I never was a, a drug like Liker. Smoke cigarettes, smoking more, smoking more. Come back home, reality's back. My mother stayed eight houses down. I gotta pass this house every day, every day. So here it is. I'm stressed now. I'm not eating. I lost twenty pounds. Went to the doctor seven times. I'm lying, Byron. Seven times. Emergency room in my primary. Had every test man me. I ran the bill up. God forgive me, Ashley. Y'all ain't getting y'all money. But um <laughs> <laughs> ran the bill up just to, you know, have the primary. And the ER nurse coming in like, Mr. Gilmore, nothing is wrong with you. So my doctor really sat me down because we have a personal relationship. And she was like, You grieving. grieving. Mm -hmm. She like, it's nothing you can do to get you grieving. She like, you need to go talk to somebody. I'm a healthcare professional. I'm not a, you know, counselor. Told her a few people that were, you know, people don't want to pass opinions, you know. And me, I'm blunt, Renato, Byron, I don't give a shit. I don't care what you feel about me or whatever. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go talk to the lady. And like I told you earlier, once I talked to her, it just felt like you laying down and you had nothing but bricks on you and you can't get out the bed. It just felt like I could just move then. Yeah. So after maybe the fourth, the fourth week, started eating again, you know, and just started looking at life a little differently, you know. And here's the here's the wonderful thing about counseling. I don't know if you're still going or not, but what I do know for sure is that if you keep living, you're going to hit another bump. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, I, I just lost my mom in January um, and it was completely unexpected. Like she just died out the blue. And so I can relate to that pain, to that uncertainty and just being like, what the hell do I do now? What I do know is that there's no feeling that I've ever felt like that. I hope I never feel that way again. But my experience has told me that there's going to come a time where I'm going to feel lost again. The wonderful thing about therapy is that one, you can always go back. And two, once you've learned those skills, now you have them. So hopefully, Miss Ethel taught you some coping skills that you can go to if you can't get to her, right? That's, that's the that's the beautiful thing about therapy. That when you when you know it, you know it. And a lot of what I do in therapy, because I'm an educator first, so a lot of what I do is education. I'm going to teach you about the hormones that contribute to you feeling happy. I'm going to teach you how sleep affects your mood and, and how you have choice over your environment, right? So that when you hit that bump again, it may be 10 years down the line, you're going to know some of these things that we talked about in counseling. You may have to go back and see a counselor again, and that's okay. But for the most part, what I want to do is arm you with as many tools as I can arm you with so that when you are feeling stressed or anxiety, you can, number one, put a name on it. Because if I can put a name on it, then I can figure out what to do about it. And then number two, you're now less likely to turn to drugs or to turn to sex or to turn to some of those other okay. um, addictive things looking for that chemical release. Nah, in the future, I, I wouldn't mind 
come and see you. Renat, I don't want to see you because you the psych and I don't want to be committed. But we work, <laughs> <laughs> we work hand in hand though. So, and also, um, it's like I said before, and I, I think I would stress this more than anything. It's about relationship because I am a therapist who digs deep. I'm going to ask you those questions that you don't want to be asked. And if I haven't already created a rapport with you, you're going to shut down and I might even make it worse. So when you are seeking a therapist, look for somebody that you feel a sense of connection to. It could be because they look like you. It could be because they remind you of someone in your past. You know, whatever the reason is, you want to have somebody that you feel comfortable with. And you also want somebody who will work with you and not just tell you to go and take a medicine or go and right. do this and I'll see you at the next visit. I found that I get more um, cooperation out with my patients and my clients if I work with them. I tell them to do the journaling. I tell them to do the mood journal. I tell them to do different activities because I want their input. I want to know, is this working? If it's not working, what do I need to tweak? If I do put them on medication, they have to do a mood journal because I need to know what you're experiencing outside of this office visit because you have to take this medicine every day. I don't. So I need to know, is it working for you? On your days where you have all tens, which means you had great days, were you taking the medicine? So that them engaging with me makes them feel more comfortable because they don't feel like I'm just going to the doctor and they're going to give me some medicine and I'm going to go home. No, they actually feel like, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to talk to her and I'm going to let her know, hey, this is working. This is not working. I was feeling like this, this, and this when I started taking this medicine. And based off of what they tell me, that's how I make my next move. So I don't ever want a client to come to me and feel like she not going to listen. She just going to give me a pill and send me about my business. That never happens with me. I always make them do something involving their care, whether it's the mood journal, whether it's texting me. My patients know they've hit me up on Facebook. They've hit me up on Instagram. Some of them have my personal um, contact information. They'll text me in the middle of the night. Hey, I'm not feeling this, that. Uh, I started taking this medicine and I'm feeling like this, this, and that. I'm, a, I'm very open with my patients. They can contact me at any time. I don't want them to ever feel like they're going to somebody who's not listening. So I take their input very seriously. I give them assignments. My patients can tell you I give them assignments because I need to know what's going on when you're not here. I only see you every so often. So in between those visits, I need to see what you wrote. I need you to email me or text me to let me know, hey, I started this coping mechanism and it's working. I had this experience and I made it through. Or, hey, you started me on this medicine. I'm having these side effects. I'm really not feeling it. All right, come on in. We can take you off of it or we can adjust it to see how, how can it, we make it work for you. Or if I need to take you off of it and put you on something else. I still need that input and I want them to feel like they are a part of their care. And one one thing also people should realize if you do seek counseling, it doesn't hurt to explore other options. Meaning I seek the counseling, but I went YouTube, you know, how to deal with such and such. Me personally, I found a sermon and I'm Catholic, but I found an old Baptist Southern preacher named Reverend, Reverend Timothy Fleming. And the sermon was, and I still listen to it, I swear every day, how to deal with that. And it, it soothes you. Like, you have to find other options because your counselor is human too. Exactly. You know, your counselor, she's helping you, but you gotta, you gotta want the help and you gotta try to help yourself. Yeah, and you know, because we started off the conversation about COVID, I think that's one of the things that makes COVID-19 so difficult to deal with because we're all experiencing it at the same time. When I, so the company that I work for, we do the school-based health clinics inside of schools. We also have um, a clinic, a community clinic. And um, obviously when the schools closed, I started seeing more adults in the clinic. I feel like the first seven days, I must have had two to three clients a day whose mom had died from the COVID virus. Now we're in March. I just told you my mom died January 7th. 
So here we are two months later, and I'm getting calls from people whose mom has passed. But you're still dealing with what you did. But I'm right, and so one thing, one sign of a good counselor is being able to know that, recognize that, and do something about it. Um, but the other thing. So I was going to say that, you know, we're all dealing with this at the same time. And then I wanted to piggyback off of what Renata was saying. I actually think that if you are seeing a counselor who tells you what to do, you should probably seek a different counselor. Because I tell all of my clients, I am not in charge. I am your partner. My role is to make observations, ask questions, and offer insight. My role is not to tell you what to do because I really believe you know what to do. You may not know that you know what to do, but my role is to pull out that resiliency, right? My role is to teach you these strategies and then walk beside you as you figure out how they're going to best serve you in your life. For one thing, you're not about to sue me. You're not going to go say, oh, no, Miss Ebony said do this and look how it worked out. Mm -mm. You came to that conclusion on your own. Right. I just walked alongside you as a partner. So I think that if you have a counselor who says, oh, do X, Y, and Z, and it's going to fix everything, then you need to seek a different counselor. Anything, Renata? No. And that is correct. So we're about to close up. Miss Ebony, you want to give everybody your, I don't know if you on social media. Yeah, so I'm on Instagram at Brookhaven Counseling 504, and I'll spell that, B-R-O-O-K-H-A-V-E-N-C-O-U-N-S-E-L-I-N-G 504. And I can be reached at area code 504-372-1810. And are you on Facebook or Twitter? Or just... So I have a... um. All right, don't judge me, okay? Here's a disclaimer. I'm not really great with with social media. I have a business page on Facebook, but I don't know how to tell people to get to it. Maybe you can y'all can look at my phone and offer we'll, me some. We'll money. help y'all. Okay, thank you. We'll help y'all. I had to write down my Instagram to remember to tell people. <laughs> you're not 55. I know I you're not. I feel like it sometimes. <laughs> And Renata, your contact information? Okay, so I can be contacted by telephone at 844-556-8550. And you can email me at R-W-E-A-T-H, the number one, at yahoo.com. I am on social media. Um, I'm going to give you my business page. <laughs> um, I can be followed on IG at I underscore care underscore med underscore staffing. That's kind of difficult. You want to repeat that? I underscore care. I underscore care underscore med, M-E-D underscore staffing s-t-a-f-f-i-n-g okay and that's nurse weatherspoon nurse and practitioner. i'm sorry nurse practitioner weatherspoon and mrs ebony allen lcsw lcsw that is they didn't correct me all day they getting me together Everybody needs a little support yes that is true and I just want to thank both of you ladies and for everybody out there. This is two beautiful women that's doing their thing. You know, we rarely find that in New Orleans because, I mean, they're on a professional site, a professional aspect of it. They're not, you know, fan page only or things of that nature. This is two women that's getting up every day trying to make New Orleans and America better. So if you feel like you need any, any of these services, please don't hesitate to reach out. They're not going to hesitate to reach back out to you or try to help you get through what you're going through. Hopefully, everyone is staying safe. If you're in the city of New Orleans, Orleans Parish, meaning New Orleans, Algiers, and Venetian Isles, you need to stay inside till May 16th. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. Wash your hands for 20 seconds. But wash your hands. You need to With wash soap. So antibacterial <laughs> soap. <laughs> Please. And keep your hands from out your face. Yes. Wear masks in the public. Please adhere to 
that lady's <laughs> rules. She's not telling you this to try to make you stay inside just because she don't want you outside. We don't want to see anybody else die. We deal, we have a murder rate that's ridiculous for the size of this city. So COVID adding on to it is not good. It's not good. So please adhere to the one and stand side. If you have any questions, you can contact Miss Allen. You can contact Miss Witherspoon. I don't want to see nursing social worker because they're going to correct me again. But I am Slim. This is You're Going to Feel Me podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Hopefully we see you next week. And like the old noir on the sand, per Papa Smurf, love is the answer, no matter what the question is.